Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field-tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business, and finally, live life on your own terms. Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Hey guys, welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. This is Mark, and I want to start with a warning. Right now, you are breaking the law. Now, I don't say this to scare you, it's just a fact. In this podcast, I'm bringing in the authority on internet law, Richard Chapo from SoCalInternetLawyer.com, and we're going to be talking about a number of ways in which web businesses are really leaving themselves exposed here. So we're going to talk about things such as privacy policy and why you should never copy someone else's or use a plugin or a template for that. We're going to be talking about how to become FTC compliant, even though it's practically impossible to be 100% compliant. But we're actually going to explain how, in reality, you should go about managing that. We're going to talk about how to avoid being sued for using someone else's images, even if they're Creative Commons images. We're going to also talk about what to do if you're giving medical or financial advice. I know a lot of people ask for that one. We're going to go over how to deal with people ripping off or stealing your content and like the copyright laws you have to consider there. We'll also cover how to protect yourself from being sued when someone comments on your blog, which you wouldn't think about it, but uh, there's actually some copyright legislation comes into play there. So yeah, some crazy stuff involved in the show today. We'll cover as well the rules around email, can spam, third party tools, link building, that kind of stuff. And finally, and this is something which we've actually done recently, is talk about registering trademarks and why there's a few cases of this really costing people a lot of money for, for failing to do it. So even if you think you, you know, you've got all this stuff down, you've got it covered, you have your own lawyer and everything's good, then I still urge you to listen to this episode because Richard's actually going to cover some new copyright laws that are coming into effect soon in the U.S., And he'll also talk about the pretty crazy situation with uh, email in Canada. So if you have any Canadians on your email list, you're going to want to listen to this show. And finally, next year in the European Union, there's some new data protection laws coming in. And that's going to affect anyone who has customers or subscribers in, in the EU. So... Really, I would urge you strongly to listen to this this show. I know law can often be a dry subject, but Richard really knows what he's talking about, specifically when it comes to internet law. It's very, very relevant to anyone that's going to be listening to this podcast. Now, one caveat here, obviously, I am not a lawyer, so I'm not going to be giving specific legal advice here. Take everything I say with a pinch of salt. But Richard is a lawyer, and he's going to be really giving you some incredible advice here. I just really, guys, I can't stress how important this podcast is if you're running an internet business. It's over an hour long, but please do listen to it all. If you don't have time right now, download it for later, save it on iTunes, or bookmark it at uh, authorityhacker.com forward slash legal podcast. You can also find all the show notes and links which are mentioned in the show there. So, yeah, please, please listen to this one, guys. It's a good one. So without further ado, here is Richard Chapo from SoCal Internet Lawyer. Hi, Richard. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? 
Very good, thanks. Very good. I must say, and you probably don't get this very often as a lawyer, but I'm very excited to be talking about law subjects with you today. This kind of stuff is something I've been sort of playing around with quite a lot lately and trying to get my, my head around. So I'm, I'm glad to have you here to, to help straighten out some of the, the things going on there. Well, thank you for having me on, and I'll do my best to redeem the uh, reputation of attorneys, although I, pro- <laughs> although I promise nothing. <laughs> so just before we start as well, to clarify, you're a U.S.-based attorney in California, is that right? Yes, in San Diego. Okay, and what you're talking about today will sort of mostly apply to U.S.-based companies, but also those doing business with the U.S., I presume. Yes, U.S.-based companies, and then, yeah, if you're tapping the market in the U.S., uh, the U.S. obviously has one of the larger consumer audiences in the world, and so a lot of people will do business here. And it's important to understand that, yeah, the U.S. courts, if you're selling to people here, you know, they're going to basically claim jurisdiction over you for those sales. So, yeah. Yeah, excellent. Okay. So I want to sort of position this the show today from the perspective of, you know, a, a company or a, a blog that's perhaps been established for a little while, has a bit of income coming in. So we're not really going to talk about incorporation and getting started but uh, you know like assume people have sort of got their site off the ground and so I was kind of thinking back to what I did in this position and there's a few things that I sort of thought and I'm increasingly becoming aware of were actually maybe bad decisions and one of the most common things I guess that people do starting up is they have a privacy policy and they have a terms of service Now, if I'm being totally honest with you, I don't actually know what the purposes of either of these documents are, but everyone just seems to sort of do it. And there's plugins and templates and whatnot that that I've actually used and still do. But apparently that might not be such a good idea. Is that right? Yes. So the purpose of the two documents, they serve actually a little bit of a different purpose, particularly in the U.S. The terms of service are contract with the people who are using your site. So... Basically, what it's going to do is it's going to define how certain actions on the site will be handled from a legal perspective. And you'll see a lot of people criticize terms and conditions. They're also called terms of use, terms of service. They're all the same thing. And we'll criticize them, but there are legal issues that you have to address. So, for instance, copyright, if you allow somebody to upload something to your site, well, they actually own the copyright in what they're using and what they're uploading. And so it's important that there's a clause in the terms that says you, the user, are giving me, the site owner, uh, permission to publish this. Because mm-hmm. technically, copyright law is so old and so antiquated and just so badly matched to the internet that you actually need permission to publish it on your site because that is actually a republishing. And so the terms are designed to deal with those issues. The privacy policy is something that's mandated now by most countries. I'm sure there's a couple of them out there that don't do it. But and these privacy policies have to contain certain language and certain disclosures that are going to alert supposedly people visiting the site as to how their information is collected, how it's secured, how you use it, and who you share it with. Those are the four basic principles that apply in every country. Now then the question becomes, what are each of those steps? What can you do and what can't you do? And it kind of depends on where you are. The United States privacy is a bit of a joke, to be honest, because we are an opt-out country. And what that means is that you can gather information from people as long as you comply with certain laws like can spam act, um, but you can you can gather their information without consent a lot of times, and then you can use that information and so on and so forth. But you just have to give them the right to opt out. 
So if you look at Facebook and Google's of the world, their whole business model is based on sweeping up as much personal information as they can, organizing it in different ways and monetizing it. So those are the two documents as far as using templates and generators and or cough copying from another site. <laughs> yeah, it's not the best approach. The problem that you have is the the web has evolved so much, you know, from 2000 when we had dial-up modems to uh, to the current state where sites are very different, sites have unique functionality and the laws are advanced, the laws have caught, kind of caught up to some of these things. The laws are still 5 or 10 years behind, but they're they're catching up. So a one size fits all type of terms of service or privacy policy just doesn't fit. And here's where you run into problems. Remember the terms of service is a contract. So if you have something in your contract that is different from what you actually do, you are violating your own contract and can get sued. And this happens to companies all the time. The other thing is you may have clauses in the contract, such as a common one is with generated terms and with things that you'll see out there for free is there'll be a clause that says we have the right to update these terms of service whenever we want and if you continue to use the site you agree to this update well course have invalidated that 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 doesn't fly and they will invalidate all of your terms for that for just having that statement in there and this has happened with huge companies zappos being the perfect example 2012 zappos was hacked and they had included an arbitration clause in their terms arbitration is really valuable because it tends to be business friendly and then they'd also included a clause that's class action waiver. And what that means basically is all the people who are harmed can't get together in a group. Instead, they have to sue individually. And it it's really limits the potential damages you're facing. Uh, but their terms were thrown out because they included a clause that said that. And what the court said was, you can't do that. That's too one-sided and it's not fair. And if you think about in the real world situation, think about any contract you sign when you bought a home. Uh, or you, you know, bought a car or something like that. Mm -hmm. So imagine you buy a car, six months later, the uh, auto manufacturer contacts you. Well, it doesn't even contact you. They just change the terms of your car, your uh, your agreement, and you know, send you a notice you now owe them you know, another 500 bucks or something. That, that would be ludicrous. And so that's what's happening with those. So if, you're, you know, if you've reached a point where your, your sites are now established, you're seeing revenue come in, you really want to get you know, custom terms put together from an attorney who understands these areas and they're internet lawyers all over the place. But some of the clauses and some of the reasons that it's really helpful is, again, that arbitration and class action waiver clauses, they're, they're must. Uh, the Supreme Court didn't even used to allow these because they're not really fair to consumers. But 2011, we now have a conservative Supreme Court and they've said that you can use these clauses and you want to do it. It's, it's an advantage to you. If you have an Apple product uh, and you go online, they're always forcing you to, you know, submit to their their terms again and again and again. There's a reason they're doing that. It's to their advantage and you can take the same advantage. With privacy... Just to uh, say one question on that, sorry to interrupt. Wait, I noticed that you, that, that Apple and many other companies are always sending out emails saying, hey, we've updated our terms. PayPal does it a lot as well. I've never read it once. I, I don't think many, many, many people do. But if, let's say we, we have a website that's been going for a year or so and we've just copied someone else's terms and we actually want to get around to doing it properly, do we then need to like email everyone or how do we notify people that we've updated our, our terms? Yes, you do. And we'd have to look at the terms that you have on the site and see what it says. It may say nothing, but it may have some specific method. Traditionally, what you're going to do is send out an email. However, you can also sometimes include a notice on the site where they log in, if it's a membership site or something of that sort. What you're really hoping to do is get to a point where you know, you, you have evidence showing the court you know, that you sent them this update notice so that there was 
constructive notice of what's what's going on. Now, the odd thing about it is you have to give them a choice, but the choice doesn't have to be a good one. So you, you can say, hey, we've updated our terms. And you know, here's an email saying this. And like you'll see with PayPal, PayPal does it really well. PayPal have a little bullet points. Here's the things that we changed. And then they'll say, you know, you have 30 days to accept this or not. Well, if you don't accept the change, you know, the action that happens is they can no longer use your site. Yeah, so most people, account. Right. So most people are going to use the, you know, they're just going to accept it. And as you said, most people are going to accept it without even reading it. I'm an attorney. I've been doing this for 20 years. I specifically write these policies. I don't read them. <laughs> I've never read the, I started reading the Apple one and, uh, you know, it cured my insomnia after about 10 minutes, you know, but you know, again, it's, and it's, it's a legitimate criticism. Nobody reads these things. The problem is, you know, what's a better solution? And, you know, nobody's really been able to come up with one. Some people say, well, you know, you shouldn't have any terms at all. Or, but that, from a legal perspective, is difficult. So for, think about when you sell a product, so you sell a course. A lot of people, you know, with sites are selling courses or they're selling, you know, something of that sort. Mm-hmm. Well, you need terms to talk about, you know, refunds, exchanges, you know, copyright issues, all kinds of these little things that you just have to deal with. And if you went to a, a normal facility, if you signed up for a course at your local college or something of that sort, you know, they would make you sign something. So it is just kind of one of those situations. Uh, the it's one a, thing on privacy... Sorry, just to, to add to that, there is uh, some pretty interesting practical applications of this as well as w- when it can actually be financially beneficial to have such terms. In uh, with companies like Stripe, uh, I believe when you're selling when you're selling a product and then someone tries to issue a chargeback, if you can prove that they have accepted your terms and your terms are are all good and above board, and uh, you know have the various server logs and whatnot, then you can actually you know fight that chargeback in many cases uh, successfully. And it, it, one of the things that Stripe mandates is that they must have actively opted into those terms by like a checkbox or something like that. I think. Yes, absolutely. The check the box aspect of it is critically important. There are a lot of attacks on terms of service, particularly for larger companies, but now it's really spreading to just anybody. And that is the issue. Did somebody accept the terms or not? And you're hitting on it exactly. The easy answer to this is always have a check the box agreement. And just to be clear, I'm sure you know, most of the listeners have purchased something from a site at one point and they've been asked to check a box saying, I agree to the terms and conditions and privacy policy. And that is the mechanism. It acts as though it's a signature on a contract. And so once the judge sees that, unless you've got something really terrible in your, your terms, you know, they're going to enforce that against the user. If you do not have that checkbox, your terms of service are worthless. There are attorneys who will argue that there's a concept called constructive notice, and there is. But constructive notice is extremely hard to prove. What constructive notice is, is it says somebody came to the site they had noticed because we put a little flag up somewhere saying, hey, you know, you're agreeing to our terms. If you come here, you'll see newspapers try to do this. And, you know, and that sounds great and all. If you, you know, you have a log, you can show on their IP that they went through a number of pages. And you say, see, they had constructive notice. <laughs> and the judge, judge will say, or their attorney will, you know, ask them on the stand, uh, did you actually read the terms of service? And what do you think they're going to say? And 99.9% of cases are going to say no. Yeah. And when they say when they say no, that's the end of your case. Um, so have the check of the box. If you're selling anything, if people are signing up for a membership, any of that, have the check box and keep a log of those actions. Once you do that, you know, you nail them down. And like you're talking about with Stripe, a lot of companies will look for that. 
the exception to that is a blog. If you have a straight blog, you're running ads that's on it or something, you're selling ads, whatever it is. Obviously, you can't have them check a box because there's no action they have to take. They can just browse through the site. In that case, to be quite honest, you're kind of screwed. But there's also nothing really that they can go after you for. What are they really going to sue you for? The only issue would be something like defamation maybe or copyright, and you can't, you can't get around those issues using terms. What some, about some, what about per, like uh, giving bad information? Like if you give some kind of like diet health advice that doesn't work, or financial advice that doesn't work out, is is that an, an issue? It is, but really, you're going to try and address those with disclaimers. The FTC has issued guidance that says uh, the FTC monitors most of this in the U.S. and they've issued guidance saying that you can't put disclaimers in your terms that they don't have any value. Again, for the reason that nobody reads the terms. Mm-hmm. And so what the FTC wants to see, which is very draconian, is they want to see the disclaimers right next to the product for each product. And if the FTC had its way, your website would be, you know, one third your own content and yeah. three quarters disclaimers. And, <laughs> you know, they've never run a business. And, yeah. you know, I actually saw one of the Disney's attorneys start yelling at an FTC attorney in, in one meeting. It was pretty funny because, you know, he was screaming about, what are you talking about? There's no way. But, you know, as long as you're generally dealing with those issues, you're okay. But, yeah, disclaimers would be the better way to do that. And even then, you know, you're not going to be protected. If you go out and you say somebody's a child molester, there's nothing I can write in a contract that's going to protect you from getting sued for defamation. Sure. And where you see this with blogs is flame wars. You know, people start criticizing other people's products or courses or, or what have you. So you have to be careful there. You have to remember that, you know, although there is anonymity on the web to some extent, anonymity is mostly starting to die. China just made it basically illegal and other countries are going to follow suit regardless of whether you think that's a good idea or not. So uh, does criticism apply to, for like I know a lot of our readers and listeners review other products and we do it ourselves. I've noticed though, a lot of people tend to err away from sort of, being too critical of a, of a product because they're, they're afraid they're going to get sued for defamation or slander or something like that. Is that a legitimate concern? And what can people do to sort of protect themselves from such consequences? It can be. Is it a legitimate legal concern? Usually not. Criticism is allowed almost always under free speech concepts. The company might try to sue you for copyright infringement or trademark infringement. But criticism is legitimate defenses to those as well. Mm-hmm. The problem that you run into is a practical one, which is do you have the money to pay to defend lawsuits? Yeah. And I mean, most people don't. You know, I, I would strongly advise that if you're going to run an online business, you buy liability insurance because that will help deal with those issues. You don't really want to go out and you know try to attract lawsuits. But you know, if something does pop up, at least you have something there that would pay any kind of judgment settlement. And almost more importantly it would pay your attorney's fees. Right. So, uh, sorry, you know, liability insurance. I'm not from the U.S. Oh, Th- That's sorry. basically your, you pay like a, I presume like a monthly insurance fee. And then, you know, if someone sues you for something like this, then you're, you're, they cover it, right? Correct. Okay. Yes. And there'll be a policy limit. It's usually a million dollars, something of that sort. Okay. There's a group called Hudson Insurance Group. Hiscox, H-I-S-C-O-X.com, mm-hmm. writes them. There's a couple different groups. But yeah, that's basically the idea. And if you have that there, you know, how, and you run into it. How much does it cost, sorry, approximately? They have to look at your business 
and see, you know, how many sites you have, all those kinds of issues, but a couple hundred bucks a month, maybe Okay. around there, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. It just kind of depends on what you're doing. I have a side business where we do um, some copyright agent issues and I receive quotes as low as 500 bucks for a year, but I have clients that run multiple sites, you know, that where they're selling courses and things of that sort. And, you know, the cost is, you know, 10 times that. So yeah. you just have to ask. And at what point should someone seek to take that out, right? The start or, I mean, I know 200 bucks a month is probably, for someone just starting a business, probably quite a, quite a big investment sink for, uh, you know, something that may not necessarily happen, especially when they're getting started. Right. As a lawyer, you know, my answer, of course, is you should do everything immediately. But, you know, realizing that's that's often not realistic. I would do it as soon as you start. And in fact, and people will criticize me for saying this, I would get it before you actually incorporate. Okay. And the reason for that is simply online and attorneys talk about forming an LLC or corp or something of that sort and how important it is because it protects your personal assets. And that's absolutely true. And you should absolutely do it. You know, when, when your business has grown to a point where, you know, you have things on the line and you can afford it. The one thing that a lot of people don't understand about that though, is if your company gets sued, how are you going to pay for attorney's fees? Right. Do you, do you have the money on hand? No. For most people, you know, if we're talking about a market, 2,500 bucks a month that you're making, you know, if you come into an attorney to defend a copyright action, there were two YouTubers that just won a big copyright case where they were criticizing another person on YouTube and they actually crowdsourced their, their defense costs, but they won. It was a pretty clear case in my opinion that they were going to win and they still, still had legal fees of 75 grand or something of that sort. So (laughs) you're not allowed to claim those fees back from the opposition in such a case. No. You can try. It's up to the judge. It depends on the nature of the case and how it came down. Um, they're going to look at the conduct of the other party. And it's copyright laws, very vague, maddeningly so. Right. Um, it's very, very hard to give, you know, black and white, you know, answers to questions because of the way that they evaluate copyright infringement and they evaluate fair use defenses, which is a whole other topic we can talk about at some point. But plus, plus, you still got to front the money in the first place, I guess. So it's quite a big deal for a lot of people. Yes. Um, okay, so just to step back a sec, I think we were going to go through the privacy policy side of things. Was, was there something else you wanted to mention there? Right. Privacy policies, they need to match what you're doing your actual data practices and things of this sort. And if they do not, the FTC will come after you with an enforcement action and damage claims are $40,000 per violation, up to Mm $40,000. And the FTC enjoys these these claims for some reason. I don't know why, but they get all excited about them. I think it's good PR for them. So you want to make sure that you, you don't use a template or something of that sort. That, that contains information that you don't actually do. And this is what they pop people for all the time. What are some uh, examples of, of that that you can think of? They'll say things like, oh, a template will say things like, we don't allow browsers, behavioral tracking, or something of that sort. And you look at the site, and it's got Google Analytics on it, which is behavioral tracking. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> behavioral tracking is these companies, Google, Facebook, all these different companies, are trying to collect data across websites. So they're trying to follow you across websites. Mm-hmm. And they can see the site you go to, and based on that information, they can build marketing profiles, and then they can sell those. So, you know, with AdSense, you know, that's that's kind of what they're doing when they're they're placing those ads. But there's whole different you know groups with those. So that's the issue there. The second thing is <laughs> these. I don't know who wrote the original ones. It drives me nuts. If I could find them, I'd punch them in the face probably. 
the privacy policies that you'll see out there for free and that are generated container clauses says we will not sell, share, or rent your personal information. Yeah, we value your personal information. We're going to protect your personal information. And that sounds noble, but what if you want to sell the business? Right. That counts as actually selling the information as well because you're selling either the business itself or an asset, which their information, which is an asset of the business. So, yeah. Right. Unless you have a really unique business, one of your biggest assets is going to be the personal information of your customers. And we see it pop up time and again. The famous case is True.com, which is a dating site, was a dating site. Their parent company had problems and ended up in bankruptcy. Another dating site came in, you know, licking their chops and tried to buy the True.com database of you know, users and people you know, who were posting uh, for $700,000. And a number of states objected to that, and the bankruptcy court upheld those objections. And True.com couldn't sell its database because they had promised not to sell it in their privacy policy. Wow. So I think that's something which uh, I, I've definitely seen that in uh, a, a privacy policy generator. I think it was one of these WordPress plugins rather before. We may even have one of these on one of our sites, I think. So I need to go, go check that quite soon. But <laughs> bottom line basically is that you can't really trust these templates or generated a privacy policy terms of service because yeah, they may just be stating generic information or, or stuff which is just factually untrue for the way you operate your business. And therefore, it's better to actually consult with an actual lawyer who can take an objective look at what you're doing and see which which parts apply, which parts don't. Right. You know, in, in 2002, yeah, you could get by with these documents. You know, unfortunately, like the rest of the web and, you know, sites and Internet of Things, devices and everything else you've seen, it's just evolved past that point. Um, and one thing I, I do want to mention just quickly, and you know, we had discussed this before the show, these are to-do items. These are just things that, you know, as a listener, you need to add to a to-do list or go talk to an area lawyer and just make a list of these things to do. These are not reasons to abandon your, your business. They're not reasons to be scared. You know, don't lose sleep over these things. It's just like the rest of your business where, you know, you had to purchase, figure out who's a good host, you know, all these different things. These are just more to-do items that you're going to want to deal with. So, you know, whenever I do a show, you know, and I start answering, there's always a lot of, you know, negative commentary about, you know, holy crap, you know, I have to deal with all this stuff. What do I do? These are just to-do items. They're just part of doing business online. And you want to get a list and sitting down with an internet lawyer, nearly everyone will do it for free. They'll just give you a free initial consultation, show them your stuff, and they'll say, you need this, 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 and this. And, you know, you don't even have to do them all at the same time. They can prioritize them and what have you. But they are to-do list kind of items that never, ever, you know, abandon a business idea that you have online unless that business idea is, you know, violating some criminal law or something of that sort. Obviously, you don't want to do that. So don't don't take all of this as, you know, ah, you know I'm going to go be a bartender somewhere and you know, forget this. Yeah, that's certainly not the intent. Yeah, I think it can be sort of quite intimidating for for people who, uh, myself included, who you know don't really have a legal background or have much experience doing this. You know, a lot of website owners specifically, they've never really ran a business before. This is their first venture; they're out on their own. And uh, you know, the way I always look at it is, it's it's the kind of thing that as your business grows, you you can kind of like take on more responsibility for compliance with this kind of stuff. So you know, when you're first starting out, if you're if you're still looking at domain names and trying to find a niche or something like that. It's probably not the the stage where you need to worry too much about that that, that yet. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's a practical side of that, which is if you're just starting out and you're a nobody and somebody was to look at you closely, a.k.a. an attorney, and they don't see that you you know, have a functioning business or any revenue coming in, you don't live in a mansion, presumably, you know, they're not going to come after you because what are they going to get out of you? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, so I wanted to bring up something which, uh, again, I think it's an FTC rule around like affiliates or earnings disclaimers. I've been having a chat with Amazon last week actually about this, and uh, they so they have quite a strict policy. Like you have to have cer- a certain phrase. I forget exactly what it is. It's, it's in their terms of service, I think, as well. But you have to have that clearly displayed on your site. But exactly what that is for each affiliate program and what being clearly displayed actually means in practice is that you know at the top of your page in the footer at the side this is a bit of a gray area so can, can you perhaps shed some light on what affiliates need to be aware of and specifically how they go about implementing that sure so let's let's look back at 2000 uh, roughly that year at that point you had companies coming online and they were trying to figure out how to promote their products and everybody hit on the glorious idea of the affiliate program. But an affiliate program is it's really a partnership. Although every company running an affiliate program will swear up and down the wall it is not uh, for legal reasons. And so attorneys like myself drafted these fascinating terms of service for affiliates saying basically, you know, we want you to go out and sell our stuff, make us a bunch of money, we'll give you a little bit of money from it. But if you get in trouble or you break any laws, we're not responsible, we don't know you. That kind of an approach. And what has happened over the last decade or so is courts have said, well, that's lovely and all, but, you know, we're not going to allow that. And they've started holding the partner programs liable for various, you know, acts. So if you are an affiliate and you go out and you just spam the living, you know what, out of, you know, 10 million users a day and you get pop for can spam, you know, the FTC is going to come back to whoever that affiliate was that you're promoting and that affiliate program, whoever you're promoting and, There's going to be a long and painful discussion with a large check probably being written Mm -hmm. by the partnership group. And so what has happened is those affiliate terms are becoming much more complex now (laughs) because they're they're trying to – the companies running these programs are trying to limit their liability or at least try to position – you know, these things in a manner that's going to hopefully keep their liability limited. So with Amazon, you're absolutely right. You know, and in fact, until probably last year, I would say 95% of Amazon affiliates didn't publish the clause that you're talking about. It's in Section 5 of the affiliate program in terms of use. And basically what it says, I don't remember the exact language, and you have to use the exact language. They're very clear about that. So look it up. But it says something along the lines of, you know, XYZ site, whatever your site is, is an affiliate of Amazon and we make a uh, commission from any sales you know, th- of Amazon products that you purchase, something along those lines. And you can, then it says, yes, you must clearly publish it. And what does that mean? Nobody knows. <laughs> I'll be quite honest with you. Has the FTC uh, issued any guidance on what that means, like where it should be placed? Well, the FTC has issued guidance regarding those kinds of disclosures that they need to appear directly next to the link or to the product that you know is being sold, the graphic, whatever it is. And, but Amazon isn't necessarily using that kind of a language. So what a lot of people do is put it in the footer. Some people will create just a separate you know, affiliate page and put it up there. If I could get Amazon's corporate counsel in a bar and have a few drinks, I, I'd bet they wouldn't care where it is. But really what they want that there for is that if a big affiliate is popped by the FTC for failing to comply with the affiliate disclosure requirements – and the FTC comes back to Amazon and says, hey, 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 Amazon can say, hey, they breached our terms. 
So you know. it's more a case of Amazon has to appear as if the, appear to the FTC as if they're doing all they can to sort of enforce this, right? They would never admit that, but yeah, I would think right. that would be probably <laughs> probably the direction that they're headed. If I was their counsel, and I wish I was, trust me, that would probably be the direction I would go in. Because the problem that you have is, you know, these companies don't want to be in a position where they're policing all of their affiliates. If you think Amazon has, I don't even know how many affiliates they have. How could they do it? And so they try to address it in their terms. And if you look at other affiliate programs, you know, you need to read their terms. And I realize a large groan just went out across the world. <laughs> but you need to look at that to see those. Because with Amazon, Amazon doesn't even really talk about it in their, their guidance. I think they mention it now. But for years, they didn't even say anything. It was just in the terms. And it was some crafty lawyer just added it as a, you know an effort to try to really address that issue. With the FTC, the FTC is, you know again, this is a group that hasn't ever run a business. And so when you have, let's say you have a blog post and you have three links in that blog post throughout that post and two of them are affiliate links, they want you to put right next to the link <laughs> a statement saying, I earn a commission you know, if you buy through this link. And um, they've actually said, uh, a couple of us were talking to them and said, well, can we just put affiliate link? And they said no, because people, you know, that wouldn't satisfy the requirement because people might not know what affiliate link means. And, you know, we stared at them and said, it's 2017. You really think people don't know what affiliate link means? And the problem is the FTC, you know, they're supposed to look at the standard of the reasonable person, but they look at the standard of a person who basically can barely breathe, you know, on their own. They're really looking at the lowest common denominator. And so you get these ludicrous rules. So anyways, if if you comply with them in general, you know, you're going to be fine. Amazon absolutely put that statement on there. And the reason that you want to do it is that if you have an issue with Amazon down the line on some other issue, you don't want to give them a basis for just terminating you. Right. Yeah. Uh, And and I have seen examples of when sites have gotten just kicked out of the Amazon Associates program before not having this disclaimer on on, on their site. So that's definitely one that you should should make sure you, you have on there. Just to sort of clarify something, you're you're not suggesting that if you know we have ten affiliate links, three of them are images linking to the affiliate product, you're not suggesting that we should actually put the disclaimer next to each one of those on the on the site, right? That's what the FTC wants to see. They have a broad, they have what are called .dot com disclosure requirements. These aren't laws. These are just they're telling you what they would prosecute, basically what they would look at as being in violation of deceptive marketing practices. You were talking about review sites earlier. Yeah. Okay, well we've all we've all seen review sites where let's say it's a treadmill review site and they list fifty treadmills and every treadmill has five stars. It's obvious that the reviews are not legitimate. You know, these people are just trying to promote, you know, sales through all fifty different types. They don't care, mm-hmm. whatever. The FTC considers that deceptive <laughs> marketing. Yep. So the way that they try to deal with that is they say, well, you know, it's hard. That's a hard fight. You know, where do you draw the line? So instead, we'll just require these disclosures. And so they want to see them next to each affiliate link unless it's an obvious ad or they want to put them. If the affiliate links are right next to each other or very close, you know, then you could do just one disclosure as an attorney and somebody does litigation. You know, I'm, I'm not as concerned with that. Because what would happen in an actual trial is, let's say it's a blog post, we would do a big blow up of the blog post. It would be a big chart. And, you know, everybody's watched various court shows on TV and they always have these big charts. We do a big blow up and we stand there and put it in front of the jury. And we say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the judge is going to instruct you on all these various legal issues that you need to pay attention to. However, you're never going to hear the judge tell you to ignore your common sense. 
here's a blog post, here's a notice, you know, at, at the first affiliate link saying this is an affiliate link, you know, or there are affiliate links on this page. Is that enough disclosure? And I would argue it is, mm-hmm. you know, and I think the jury is going to be receptive to that. And so I think the FTC goes too far. Now, that's my position on it. That's not something, you know, you can necessarily rely on as being absolute. I just tell you as an attorney, I would feel comfortable making that argument because I don't think jurors are idiots. You know, and I think that they're going to be, you know, particularly if you have a page and you have a disclaimer halfway down that says there are affiliate links on this page, they understand. Right. Um, And I presume anyone potentially prosecuting or thinking about prosecuting that would also have that in mind that, hey, the probably jury is going to realize that as well. So they might might not want to move forward with that. Maybe. The FTC just spent six years or something going after pomegranate for their palm wonderful, whatever it's called, for whether their health claims were deceptive or not. So it's <laughs> yeah, what, what was the outcome of that? I haven't heard of that story. I think the latest outcome was the FTC had partially won. I don't know, both sides were claiming victory at the end, which usually means it was a middling decision. But I can guarantee you that there were a bunch of jurors and judges who were just sitting there saying, what the hell are we doing? Then you get in these arguments. The, The problem with litigation is that once it starts, sometimes it can be really hard to stop it. The famous case is uh, the dancing baby on YouTube. There's a, a video of a dancing baby a woman had put up, and the baby is dancing to a print song for roughly 20 seconds. 11 years of litigation over whether that was copyright infringement. Really? I, I think yeah. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. They went to the Supreme Court of the United States. Wow. And I can, I can guarantee you those 80-year-old justices never in their life thought they would be looking at a dancing <laughs> baby online you know, as to whether there was a copyright infringement case. So these things, really what I try to do with my clients, and I think what most good attorneys will try to do is, is it's not the question of can we win the lawsuit. It's a question of how can we mitigate against this risk so there is no lawsuit. Yeah. yeah. And that's really, really should be your goal. Uh, and that's why some of these things, you know, you really want to do. And again, that's with terms of service and privacy policy, all that stuff. You want to have it in order so that if somebody does look at it from the FTC or some private attorney or whatever, they can say, eh, these guys kind of have their act together. And meanwhile, there are 10,000 other sites that don't. Yeah. Well, so let's, so let's really, that. Re- really, when you're looking at where to place your disclaimer and stuff, that's kind of what you want to be thinking, like how someone else is going to perceive what you're doing, like how far are you going to sort of address these things then? And uh, they're, they're probably just going to look you over if, you, if you're doing more than most people. Yeah, well, as an attorney, I can't tell you to violate sure. the law, so I would <laughs> follow it strictly. If you do a search online for FTC and then a separate word, well, separate, whatever you would call it, .com, disclosures, you can see what they've said. It, it's a printout. It's generally sort of in English, not too much legalese. But they give examples at the back. And I guarantee you nearly every listener, once they start looking at examples, will start laughing. Mm-hmm. It's just it's one of those government things where they've obviously never run a business, and it's it makes you laugh because, I- you know – Again, the sites just look bizarre if you include all the stuff they want to see. Yeah, and you, it would confuse users so much what's going on seeing these these disclaimers all over your blog post, especially you know if you've, you're reviewing ten or fifty products in a single blog post, perhaps. It's also going to kill your credibility. Yeah. Because yeah. if you go to a site and you see all these disclaimers and all these you know everything like that, aren't you going to think, wow, what's all this and why are they saying all this? 
even when it doesn't substantively go to you know the value of the products or services or what have you. By the way, I was just going to say for the listeners out there, all of the links which we're mentioning in here, links to the FTC site and various Amazon terms and whatnot, you can find them in the show notes of this episode. They'll be online at authorityhacker.com forward slash legal podcast. So I'll be sure to add them in there. Um, just moving on to the, the next area I wanted to touch on is around images. So I know this used to be like a really big problem back in the day, people stealing each other's images, just going straight to Google image search, which is great. But, you know, if you lift images from there and stick them in your, your blog post without checking, you know, what's allowed and what's not, then that can land you in some pretty, pretty hot water. Do you want to just talk about that and how perhaps people can mitigate against that? Sure. You know, the issue is copyright infringement. And basically to understand, you know, keep in mind, copyright law is hundreds of years old. So it has, you know, it was it's, the foundation of copyright law was created when there was no Internet. And it doesn't always translate well to the web, which is probably a shock to nobody. But the idea behind copyright is that if you create a work of some sort, a book, an image, a song, whatever, you own the right to basically profit from that or not even profit but just copy public you know copy uh, publish whatever you have so let's take a stephen king book as an example i always use stephen king writes a book when he finishes that book he automatically owns the copyright to it it's called a common law copyright and at that point he signs a contract with the publisher probably already has one and he gives the publisher the right to go out and make copies of that book and market it and sell it in exchange for a royalty and so that's the basic simplified version of copyright now when you see an image online you know somebody took that photo and the person who took that photo owns the copyright to it and unless you have some type of a fair use defense you know or some other basis for using it which in most cases you're not you know you're committing in copyright infringement when you copy that image now the web has introduced a different aspect to this that makes things a little more confusing, which is basically we've become a sharing economy. And a lot of people will, you know, allow people to, to republish on Facebook or wherever these different images and they don't care. And in fact, they want you to do that as part of their marketing program. So you have to be a little careful with that. But even in that situation, you can't take the image usually and just, you know, add it to your blog post or use it for some other reasons. That's infringement. And under U.S. copyright law, if you're sued for copyright infringement, in most cases, um, the person would go ahead and register that with the copyright office, and then they would be entitled to what are called statutory damages. And those damages are between 200 bucks an image and $150,000. A judge or a jury would decide, depending on how the case went ahead. And if you were found liable for the infringement, you may also have – the other party may also be able to recover their attorney's fees from you. So we're talking about something significant. The best way to get around this is, in my opinion – Create your own images. Go take photos. I, I mean, I realize not everybody's a photographer, but in this day and age, you know, with smartphones and what have you, you know, depending on what it is that you're promoting, you can take your own image. If you can't do that and you're promoting an affiliate product of some sort, contact the affiliate program and they often will give you images. So if you're doing a review of a treadmill or something of that sort, you know, they'll just give you the product images. If none of that applies, it's just a general blog post and you need some kind of picture for something, the stock photo sites, as annoying as they are, you know, that would be a good way to go. If you're going to be absolutely cheap about it, Creative Commons license are also an excellent choice. You have to be careful and read the license, though. They have different licenses. Some require attribution. Some do not. It's just, you know, something that you have to pay attention to. Even, Free I was just going to say, with uh, some stock image sites, stock photo sites, you have to be careful if you're creating a product 
I think they have like different licenses for different uses, like uh, commercial use and personal use or something like that. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. They'll categorize them in different <clears throat> ways. But yeah, you, you can take an image perhaps off of their site and use it for, you know, pay for it and use it for a blog post. But there may be a prohibition against using it for a book cover. The other thing that they will include are prohibitions against the type of content you use it from. So if you are writing something nasty about somebody and something uh, negative, a lot of times they will not allow you to put those to use those stock photos because they don't want the person in the stock photo to be portrayed negatively. Because there's been some incidents sure. <laughs> where the model is walking down the street, you know, somebody <laughs> assaults them, not realizing that they're just a model, <laughs> didn't have anything to do with it. And getting beat up for something you don't have any clue to is uh, certainly wow. not not a great experience. So that would be you know the way to do that. But again, with images, you know, particularly stock photos, it's so cheap now. I mean, spend the money. You know, the cheapest site I found out there, and this probably isn't even the case anymore, is Fotolia. It's F O T O L I A, and I think you know it's it's like thirty five bucks, and you get I don't, I don't even know seventy five images or something. So That's it's you know. Actually. Yeah, the, the one we use is deposit photos. Like every few months on AppSumo.com, they have like a special offer. I think it's like thirty-five bucks, forty bucks, something like that. Although they did say they would raise the price next time for a hundred images. I think I bought like a couple thousand last time and just been working our way way through those over the last year or so. Um, right. But yeah, I definitely recommend getting. It. The other thing I would say is as well is I've heard that you have to be pretty careful sometimes with Creative Commons images because people can actually take images which belong to someone else and then upload them themselves as creative commons or somewhere else and but that still doesn't alleviate you of any guilt if like the original source image was copyright that's absolutely true and that's a good point i don't use creative commons you know and as a lawyer I'm, you know cheap as hell i do pay for stock photos myself but then again nobody's going to my site for the images but yeah no that is absolutely true another thing that i would mention that is kind of folklore on the web and again whoever originally posted it needs to be slapped upside the head you cannot take an image or any other kind of copyrighted content post it and then put a link back to the original the original source for that and say that that's fair use defense it's not it is no defense to copyright infringement. What it's a defense for is plagiarism. And plagiarism is not a legal concept. It's just an academic concept. So if you take an image and you put it somewhere and you say, hey, a photo originally from wherever, and you think that's going to get you off, not only is it not going to get you off for copyright infringement, it is going to just kill you in court. Because one of the issues that the judge or the jury will look at was, did you know that this was a copyrighted image that you were taking? And if you put a link there giving attribution to the original source, it's pretty hard to argue that you yeah. didn't know. True, true. So, yeah, attribution, you always hear this. Just attribution, do attribution. No, unless it's a Creative Commons, and Creative Commons, some of the licenses say you can use it if you give attribution, but that would really be the only instance. Just before we move on, I want to talk about something else real quick. We've covered a lot of advanced stuff here today, but if you're still a beginner or waiting to get started with your authority site, I have something that you'll want to see. We've created a free training webinar where Perrin from Authority Hacker shows you exactly how he built a six-figure authority site in under two years. So if you want to get the exact tactics and system he used, please check out our free training webinar. You can get in right now by going over to authorityhacker.com forward slash tactics. Okay, so bottom line for images is use stock images if you can. Take them yourselves, obviously, yeah. But if you're using stock images, be sure to check the actual license terms, especially if you're operating, like putting it on a, a product cover or something commercial like that. Right. 
Okay, great. So let's move on then. This is something which we encountered quite a lot uh, over the last couple of years is uh, we have a couple of products on Authority Hacker, like training courses, and a lot of people like rip off our content. So they'll they'll maybe uh, download the content and then republish it on YouTube or on their own site, on like a file sharing site as a, as a torrent or something. And uh, back in the day, people were just Googling for our brand name and these sort of pages were showing up. We've since sort of hired some DMCA specialists to, to get involved and certainly cleaned up things a lot. But do you just want to talk about how people can maybe protect themselves from this kind of stuff happening? I mean, it's, it's always going to happen when you have a product, when you have this kind of content. But what can people do to sort of, I guess, minimize their, their exposure there to, to what people are doing? Yes, this is an extremely common problem. You know, and unfortunately, in theory, you could get everything taken down, every single one, you know, issue taken down. If you have $50 million to pay the attorneys to go sit there and, you know, hunt all of them, since that's probably not going to happen. What you're really looking at is, yeah, trying to attack sites that are using that. And the way to do it is basically you can do a search for the product name, Google, and they're almost always going to come up with most of the results or most of the key results. And then you file DMCA takedown notices. As an attorney, I usually send a cease and desist letter first just because it can make it a bit more legally concerning, if you will. It's going to cause somebody concern if they get something from an attorney and realize, oh, maybe I'll get sued. And you can get the pages taken down and what have you. A DMCA takedown notice is just an informal process, but basically it's a document that is going to say, hey, you're stealing my content or the site is stealing my content. You know, here's my original content. Here's the page with the stolen content. I state under penalty of perjury that this is my content and that I have authority to file this. Uh, and that's probably what the DMCA agent service that you're using is doing. The question then is how do you how do you get these these companies to take the stuff down? A lot of them are offshore. So what you want to do is start by looking for their host, and you can use their who is file to try to identify the host. Even if it's just listed as a sequence of numbers, you can do a Google search for those numbers and the host will usually pop up. And then what you want to go through do is go through the site, even you know, add to the cart, look at who they're using for payment processing and things of that sort. And you're, you're just trying to identify all these different companies. You make a list and then you start hitting each of those companies with DMCA takedown notices. And if you can get one of those companies in the U.S. in particular or one that does a lot of business with the U.S., they will usually take it down. And the reason is the way the DMCA works. So the DMCA was enacted in 1998. It's federal U.S. law, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And what it says basically is, well, it says a lot of different things, but the key aspect of it is Section 512. And it says any site or Internet-connected platform, so an app, will not be held liable for copyright infringement based on content uploaded by users if it follows a compliance process. So let's use this and probably the most common situation, which is Facebook. People will post things to their Facebook page all the time. Well, Facebook would have been buried under a tsunami of copyright infringement lawsuits you know, as soon as it came out when this started happening. But instead, the DMCA says as long as they follow this process, they can't be held liable. Now, the person who posted it can, but not Facebook. So the, one of the key aspects of the compliance process is that when a DMCA complaint comes in, so when you you know submit a complaint about your, your book or your course, that company must, and, and the key word is must, must take down that content. And then they have to send a notice out to the person who posted it, and they say to them, we received a copyright complaint, and you need to 
react to this, give us a basis for rejecting this or not. In 95% of cases, there's no valid defense to that copyright infringement case. So if somebody stole your course, they don't have a defense. They stole it. And there's no fair use defense or anything of that sort. No nonsense. And so that, that site will take or that service will take it down. So if you get their host, their host obviously has thousands of sites. They don't want to risk it, so they're going to take it down. If you hit their affiliate program, you know, whoever they're promoting, sometimes that works. If you hit their payment processor, PayPal or whoever, they will often eliminate their accounts. <laughs> so yeah. so it has the effect that you want. Now what about some bigger sites? Now, you know, some listeners undoubtedly have dealt with this and they'll say YouTube or some of these these groups, they don't automatically take it down. And instead they'll actually evaluate the risk. And that is true. They will do it. But if somebody stole your course or your book, they're gonna eventually take it down. Even Apple does and they're slow as can be. But the reason why they don't automatically take it down is, you know, they don't really need the DMCA immunity. They have so much money that if they had to deal with a copyright infringement case, they, they would deal with it. And there are a lot of false uh, DMCA takedown notices that are that are filed. So, for instance, if you did a review of a product, the product just stinks, and you write a negative review, some attorneys and some companies will go out there and file a DMCA takedown notice. And they'll say, you know, they have our product up. Well, there's clearly a fair use defense because it's criticism, which is a common fair use position and it shouldn't go down and so google and you know these groups won't take it down and they'll say well if you want to sue us have at it and we're going to cream you in court and that's that's why you see some of those groups down but that's really the idea it's just to, to hit those now you mentioned something which is very true you may have a hundred different sites i have a client right now there's 67 sites that have their course and we're going through each one of them and, you know, we'll eliminate a lot of them. But I can guarantee you as soon as we eliminate a lot of them, you know, another 10 or 20 will appear. Yep. yep. <laughs> and that's just kind of, you know, that's the downside of the web. And if you run into somebody who is a smart black hatter or smart hacker or whatever, they're only going to be using services that are outside of the U.S. that they know are not going to react to copyright complaint. And then in that situation, you can go through extremely expensive litigation to try to bar that internet service provider from accessing the U.S., from giving their data to the U.S. And if you're Microsoft, that makes sense. If you're running you know, online sites that's making five grand a month, probably not. And you just kind of have to suck it up. And you know, unfortunately, that's life. It is, there are good and bad sides to it. A lot of times you can eliminate a lot of them. But you know, are you always going to eliminate everybody? You know, I wish I could tell you yes, but it's just probably not the case. Yeah, and it's it's also worth pointing out that you can actually go straight to like the search engines as well and file DMCA claims there. So at least it makes it more difficult for people, you know, searching for your product or your your brand name to actually to actually find those. But something about that I discovered as well that once Google removes the links and it puts an actual notice on the search results page with a link to another page, which actually then has the link back to the original page itself. Right. So if people actually want to find it, then that's where you go to yeah. find it. In, in some ways, it actually makes it easier, which is a, yeah, the, a little bit counterintuitive. But yeah. Well, it is. And, you know, it's annoying as heck. There's another aspect of this that I, I probably should mention. Very rare. But if you run into a quality black hatter, somebody who's really just gone completely to the, uh, the dark side, if you will, and all of their services are outside the U.S., you're going to have a really a difficult time trying to get it down, but you find a kink and you do get it taken down. They may react viciously with denial of service attacks on your sites and things of that sort. So you, you kind of have to weigh, what do I want to do? What do I not want to do here? For some clients that I have, you know, I'll be honest with you, what, what they do is, you know, the volume of sales for your course typically is going to be, obviously, when it's just launched. 
and for a period of time and you'll you'll know from your data when most of those sales occur and we will fight dog and we'll do the, the every effort that you can to try to defeat those sites during that period mm-hmm. and then afterwards maybe just consider it you know free marketing or something of that sort and yes you will lose sales but People who are, they're always going to be black hatters and there's just nothing you can do about it. So maybe fighting them for three months or whatever the period is, you, you can limit the damage. And then after that, you know, you just kind of suck it up and move on to something else. Yeah. And there's other ways you can sort of make it a little bit more difficult or, or at least make the, the user experience of a, of a black hatter less, less enjoyable. If you add different elements to your course, for example, we have an Authority Hacker Pro of Facebook group and, you know, we're posting a lot of content there. We're doing um, webinars with like new information on a regular basis. So it just means that anyone who's ripping off the course has to kind of keep updating the information and pull more information and update all their files and just become generally a bit more of a hassle and puts whatever they have out of date quite quickly. So Yeah, well, the other thing you can do is talk to programmers. Go talk to programmers on cutting-edge sites, cutting-edge forums, and see if there's anything that they can put into the courses themselves. Although they can replicate the course, a good bit of it is messed up or it automatically you know, shoots things the wrong way or something. <laughs> yeah, know? I mean, when it, when it comes to video courses, most people are using sort of like standard like Chrome plugins or something like that to actually pull right. all the, the video files. So there's definitely things you can do to sort of make that not impossible, but a, a very difficult experience and, and slow, slow it down. Right. Um, okay, so just uh, a couple more things I wanted to touch on. Collecting emails. So what do we really need to be aware of uh, here? I know there's sort of different people who have views on like single opt-in, double opt-in. I know in, in certain cases you, you have to have explicit permission to, or I'm not really sure what the word is, but they have to know that I'm subscribing to an email list. You can't just sort of start sending them emails if they submit a contact form or something like that. So what do we need to be aware of here? What do we need to be careful? Right. Well, in the U.S., the key laws can spam act, and it's basically much more permissive than you'll find in other countries. So you can send out commercial unsolicited commercial emails as long as you keep <clears throat> follow a certain guidance you have you know a statement in it the header or in the uh, subject line that's advertisements things of the sort and you can go through the list there's actually the ftc the shock of everybody put out a, a nice little guide on it you can do a search for can't spam act compliance guide plus ftc on google or wherever and it'll come up and it's actually in plain english and you can read through that. I tell clients always double opt in if at all possible. I also tell them that if somebody has signed up for a service or something of that sort, you know, you absolutely have to make it clear that, you know, they're also agreeing to the email. There's two sides of that. One is the legal side, which ironically I'm less worried about, but it's more the practical side. How much grief are you going to get about sending somebody those emails? Email law is something that's it's difficult to talk about because the U.S. has such a lax system, but other countries have such restrictive systems. And the problem is when you have your list and you develop your list, you don't really know where people are coming from. I mean, there's ways to, to look at it, but most people aren't going to do that. You know, they're just going to create a funnel or what have you to try to generate signups. So in other countries, the EU, Canada, of all places, Canada has just a brutal email law. They want consent up front. And they want you to checking a box saying, I consent to basically everything. And you have to list all of these different issues, you know, and it's, it's a bear. Now, the question, and this is an esoteric legal thing we'll just discuss briefly because I want everybody to slowly have their heartbeat, you know, fail. Jurisdiction issues. How do the countries enforce their laws in other countries? 
So how would Canada ever enforce their email law in the United States, for instance? It's a, it's a difficult subject, and my personal view is they'd have a very hard time doing it. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't try and all these different things. So it kind of depends on where you are located. So, for instance, if you're in the UK, you need to be worried about the general data protection regulation because you're there. And if you're in the U.S., you know, you're really more focused on the can spam. And if you're using third-party services, you know, the MailChimps of the world, whatever it is that you happen to like, they're usually going to force you to be in compliance as part of their mailing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't have to worry about that too much. But, yeah, I, if possible, double opt-in is definitely the way to go. A lot of people will go single opt-in. You just don't see any litigation in this area anymore, to be honest. Uh, it's kind of been played out. I mean, I'm sure there's some cases out there, but they're very rare. So as long as you're using a third-party service, I really wouldn't even worry about it because they're going to force you to add the information that you have to have. The key things to always remember is you can't have a false or misleading header information. It has to be from a, your real address. You can't use deceptive subject lines. And if it's an ad, an unsolicited ad, you have to have an ad statement in that subject line. It has to identify that it is. You have to include a clause in there telling recipients where you're located, and you often see it at the bottom of the email. And you have to tell them how to opt out. Don't make it difficult for people to opt out. (laughs) That's where the FTC will hit you. And you have 10 days when somebody does the opt out to take them off your list. Just do it immediately. I mean, really, if they've opted, you know, if they want out, they're not going to buy anything in the next 10 days. Yeah, most most systems will do that automatically. They have the unsubscribe link. So if if you're using MailChimp, then that's probably going to uh, they're probably going to take care of most of those those kind of things for you. Uh, just on right. the can spam, actually, how do you differentiate between? I believe there's two categories, like a advertisement and like a non-advertisement. And can spam just covers advertisements. Is that right? It does. It depends on the relationship that you have with the party. So if you're sending out an administrative email. So for instance, hey, we've updated our terms and conditions. You know, you're only going to be sending to people. Well, in that situation, yeah, cancel spam compliance is relaxed because there's no commercial sale. It's something that has to be done, particularly has to be done for a legal purpose. So in that situation, you don't have to be as compliant. I would still do it. Again, just why not? Uh, just be in the habit of it. The problem, I've been doing this for 20 years, and one of the things that comes up with people is, if we're brutally honest, and this just pains me as an attorney to say, my clients may listen to what I tell them, and six months later, you know, not even be thinking about it. And so I think the better approach for your business is if there is a legal standard, do it all the time. It doesn't hurt you, particularly with email. Because everybody's used to seeing these things. So I would just be as compliant as possible, do it all the time. And if sending an administrative email, then are you going overboard? Sure, but who cares? Plus, it's an administrative email. Nobody's going to buy off of it. So you're, you're all right with that. Now, in other countries, there is a big difference. So in Canada, if you're going to send a commercial email, you more or less have to auction off your first child to comply with the regulations. However, if you're then sending an administrative email to a client, you don't have to comply with much of anything because it's it's you already have a relationship with that person. So if somebody's purchased a course from you and you're sending an update or something like that and you're not upselling them, that's not an issue. But even in Canada, I'd have to look at the law again. There's something like a three-month limit on that. Canada's law is just bizarre. Again, you have to kind of look at that. So if email is going to be a big issue and a big selling point for you, in theory, yes, you should talk to an attorney. But I got to be honest, as much as it probably hurts me, the third-party groups that do this, they're all over it. (laughs) They're all over the legal regulations because if you get popped using their system, they're going to get popped. Yeah, yeah. So in a lot of cases, these groups will do that. And in an interesting kind of twist, as long as you aren't spamming like a madhouse, 
you know, a lot of times the regulatory agency would probably be more interested in the group that you're using, the third party that you're using, you know, than they were you. I wouldn't rely on that much, but the FTC and these kinds of groups, they don't have a budget where they can go out and prosecute every site in the world, you know, that's doing violations. Yeah. So what they're looking for are examples. What's the most buck that they're going to get for their enforcement action? Well, you know, if you're a blogger and you're failing to do affiliate disclosures and you're an affiliate program from, you know, some tiny shop in Florida and there's only four affiliates, could the FTC go after you? Absolutely. And as a lawyer, I'm going to tell you, you absolutely have to comply with that. Now, if they can get Amazon on something like that at the same time, which are they going to choose? They're going to choose Amazon because that's going to be big news and it acts as a deterrent to the overall internet community. Yeah. And so it's kind of the same thing with any issue that these groups will look at, email and what have you. But um, with CanSpam, use the third-party systems if you can. I know it can get expensive, but use them, and they're almost always going to force you to comply. How does it work with, for example, outreach emails? So if I want to have a guest on the podcast and I want to outreach to them and say, hey, do you want to come on and talk about, I don't know, graphic design or something, does CanSpam come into that or is that more like a business to business kind of communication i would view it as business to business and the other thing is it's not a commercial proposition uh-huh. you're not you're not trying to sell them anything so i wouldn't i wouldn't worry about that too much what they're really looking for you know they're not going to come after you for five emails they're going to come after you for five million emails right that's really what they're looking at and again it's a deterrent situation so I wouldn't be hugely concerned about that. If email is going to be the, the predominant part of your business model, and it is for a lot of people, it's a great system because you have control of your list. Just sit down with an attorney and show them what you're doing. And, you know, 99% of the cases are going to say that's fine. The only concern would be, you know, if you're mailing to other countries, which all of you are. But are those countries? I'll give you an example. One of my clients received a tax bill from Romania, and it wasn't for a lot of money. You know, and they sent this nasty letter, and my response was, a slow raising of my middle finger saying, come and get us. It doesn't make sense. And right now, everybody listening to this podcast, including myself, we're breaking some internet law in some country, maybe one we've never even heard of. There are just all these different laws. So email lists are a little bit of a gray area. Are you going to have problems? If, as long as you comply generally with can spam, as long as you're complying with the requirements that your third-party email provider, the MailChimp's the world, whatever they are, requires, oh, you're going to be fine. Okay. And is the same true with uh, like link building? So if I'm, I'm emailing a bunch of people saying, hey, do you wanna, can I do a guest post on your site? I presume that's, that's sort of out with the, the can spam as well. As an attorney, I would want you to comply with again spam. Realistically, you know, again, I mean, are people going to have an issue with that? No. I, I mean, most of them, you know, even if they don't want to give you a link, that's just part of a business. Again, the Can Spam Act is kind of bizarre because, you know, all the litigation that really surrounded it and what it applied to and didn't apply to it happened years ago. And most people just kind of ignore it as long as you don't go out and spam like a madman. But when you're sending singular emails like that, Unless the person on the other end is an incredible jerk. I mean, what what are you going to run into? (laughs) No, there is. You're absolutely right. There is. There's a guy in California who still tries to sue people. And the court just throws it out, throws it out, throws it out. uh, Because he tries to sue under California law that was preempted by Can't Spam. And so, you know, but he still does it. 
and you still send a notice to him, you know, dear jerk, this isn't going to fly, blah, blah, blah. And that's just kind of the nature of it. But that's the risk of any business. There's always going to be some little strange law that you may be violating. Florida law, for instance, Florida law requires you to list your name, your business, your business address, I think your phone number and your email on your site if you're in Florida. And I can guarantee you 99.9% of Florida websites don't do that. Right. Okay. So just just to sort of like close up here, I want to talk quickly, if we can, about trademarks. This is uh, something I've just actually done for, for our site. And I really had no idea this was like such a, such a big deal and could cause so many problems until recently. But w- what are trademarks? When should one register a trademark? And how does one go about doing that? A trademark is a logo, symbol, it could be a short phrase, something that identifies essentially your brand or product or what have you. The reason trademarks are important is because they stand as a symbol to consumers. And that symbol can be a symbol of quality, a symbol of cutting edge tech, whatever. So for instance, Apple, the Apple logo and the Apple name mean things to people. If I said this is, you know, I have this digital watch over here. Or I said, hey, I have an Apple digital watch. You may have different views depending on your experiences with Apple as to which one's better. And so what you have with those trademarks is the ability to communicate with consumers a certain amount of credit, in my opinion, certain amount of credibility, good or bad. Maybe you make crappy stuff, who knows? And so you want to protect those those marks and keep other people from using those marks. They usually don't use the exact mark. Instead, they try to get close to it. And then the question becomes, is it causing confusion with consumers? So if I have an Apple and somebody, you know, somebody launches an Apple iWatch and they spell Apple with an extra P, they're infringing on the mark because it's going to confuse consumers. That's kind of the general idea. To form a trademark, you have to register with the Patent and Trademark Office. And the Patent and Trademark Office is incredibly overrun with business, so it takes six months at a minimum, maybe a year to get your mark. But basically what you're going to do is you're going to submit the mark and you're going to pick a class. There, I don't even know how many classes there are now, 40 or 50 or 60, and the class applies to a certain particular region of the, of the economy. So internet, for instance, internet blogs is a class. There's even a class for food blogs at this point. And so you would apply for that, and the mark would apply in that, that particular situation. So let's consider Amazon. Amazon's obviously a huge internet company. They get that mark. That mark is really strong. Consumers have a really strong association when they hear that name. And they relation to some kind of internet application. Does that mean that companies cannot start an Amazon River Tour company and register Amazon River Tours? No, because that's in a different medium. It's a different economic medium. It has nothing to do with online Amazon stores. And so they would try to do that, although then when they try to launch an internet site, it might cause some ruckus. But that's the basic idea. So you're protecting your brand. And to do that, you need to register the trademark. Once the trademark is registered, it goes through a process at the Copyright Office where they look for competing marks or if there's any deficit or any issue with the, the trademark. And then once they grant it, you know, you have that mark and there are assumptions that come along about its validity and what have you. And basically it's it's valuable. Not only is it valuable in protecting your, your brand, but it's a valuable asset as well. So if you go to sell your brand or uh, you sell your company or something of that sort, that trademark is going to have a value to it. In some situations, if the mark is unique, you can actually license it out. So if somebody wants to associate their products with you, they'll sign a license with you because you know, they want to say, oh, this is a Google service or something like that. Um, so it can have value with that. When should you file it? Well, 
trademarks are actually fairly common sense on this issue. You can only get a mark if you're using it. Uh, you can only get a trademark if you're using it in commerce, which means that it can't be an idea. It can't just be a drawing. You have to actually be using it. You have to have a product, a brand, whatever it is, and you're using it. That's the only time that you can file. However, there's an exception that you can file what's called an intent-to-use application. And that's where you know you have a product or a course coming out, let's say, in three months, and you know you want to lock down that mark, and so you go ahead and file it. And what happens, you have six months after that to go ahead and actually file the real application for the registration. Uh, the advantage of the intent-to-use application is that if your subsequent registration is approved, they backdate the registration to the time that you filed the intent-to-use application. In trademark law, one of the issues is always who used it first. And so if you can backdate it as far as possible, you know, that can help you in some situations if you're you know, worried about there being competitors out there. So trademark is basically who used it first and from that point forward, who has you know, the official mark. You definitely want to trademark you know, whenever you can. It is the most annoying process in the world um, just because it's a hurry up and sit around and do nothing. You do a trademark search up front. A trademark search is basically... I'd love to tell you I do it, but I hire a service. Uh, and they go out and they look through databases and online and state trademark filings and everything else. And they're looking for anything that might your mark might conflict with because you obviously want to avoid that. You want to know before you spend money developing your business and everything else if you have a problem. Assuming that they come back and they say there's no conflicts, then at that point you go through the registration process. You can submit the registration online now. Trade, Patent and Trademark Office has modernized all their systems, which is great. You file it. And after three months, they send you a postcard that says, dear so-and-so, we acknowledge that you filed this, you know, this mark for registration. That's all it says. Um, and then you wait another three months. You don't hear anything from them. Uh, and then you may get a letter from the, the examining attorney asking questions about the mark or contesting some aspect of it, at which point you then respond and wait for another six months. If you don't hear anything from the examining attorney, attorney at that point you're probably going to get a notice that says you know we don't have any issue with this registration we'll go ahead and register it it then goes into a trademark gazette um, after 30 days and people have 30 days after that to object to it so basically what you have is a bunch of attorneys sitting out there looking at these marks that are up for approval going through and seeing if any of them conflict with any of their clients marks if that doesn't happen then after another 11 weeks they actually approve your mark at that point you don't remember why you filed for the mark originally you may have a family, you may not be in business anymore, who knows. But that's the general process. Should you do it? Yes, absolutely. Is I've actually heard of cases when, you know, like a big corporation may come and sort of just decide. There, there was one in particular, I forget what it was, but they, they wanted to use some brand name as like a hashtag in like some marketing promotion. And some other blog or site had been using this term, like that was their name. And this other company filed a the trademark and then it's created all sorts of legal hassle and the small company ended up having to change their name just because they couldn't afford the attorney's fees or something like that. So yes. it, it's definitely, I think it's one of those cases where it's not bad until it's bad and then it's very bad all of a sudden. So uh, Yes, trademark, trademark litigation is extraordinarily expensive. If I didn't hate trademark, that area of law, I would become a trademark attorney. Legal fees will easily run 500000 or a million dollars. Wow. Yeah, so if you are trademarking, you also want to get those insurance policies in place. One of the things with insurance policies for any business, including online, is a good idea is to buy your basic policy, purchase it, which is going to give you a million dollars in coverage. And then at that point, get an umbrella policy, what's called a commercial umbrella policy. 
what this policy does is it kicks in if something happens to your million-dollar policy, if the million dollars runs out or something of that sort. So you get a judgment against you for $2 million. Well, your original insurance policy is only going to pay a million dollars on that. So the umbrella policy will kick in and cover the rest of it. Why get two policies like that? Umbrella policies are generally really cheap because they're rarely used. So you can buy them for premiums that can be very, very low. And so, you know, by putting that in place, you can help guard against some of the craziness. We were, before the show, discussing the general data protection regulations. It's a regulation coming out that's going to be effective in Europe in May 2018. It deals with personal information and privacy. It's very complex. The penalties are up to $20 million or 4% of your worldwide gross income if you don't comply with the law. That's whichever, a lot of money. Whichever is greater. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an ugly little piece of legislation. Now, are they going to go after everybody for twenty million dollars? No. Are they going to go after Google for twenty million dollars? Yes. But people listening to this show that are making five grand a month don't have a seizure. They're not coming after you for twenty million dollars. But you should talk to an attorney about the GDPR at some point if you're selling uh, services or what have you or collecting information from people in the EU. That's a whole other subject. But anyways, what we're seeing with the internet, a phenomenon that's kind of scary even for me is you know we had the World Wide Web, the free exchange of information. And what people need to wake up to, and you may care, you may not give a flying you-know-what, is governments are reestablishing their jurisdictions online. And what we're going to see in the future, almost assuredly, is the Internet carved up because governments pass laws that conflict with each other. And we so, already see that with the EU and the US with this GDPR thing, I think, as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in some countries, you know, China just enacted a law. My clients don't really deal with China, but I keep an eye on these things. China just made anonymity illegal. When you're online with a Chinese site, which I realize most people probably aren't, but if you were on Baidu or something like that, or some site where you had to provide information, you have to provide your real information, your real name, your address, the whole deal. Mm-hmm. And the other thing countries are doing is they're they're saying, well, if you want to collect information from our citizens, you have to put your servers in our country. And so Russia is a classic example of this and makes people nervous for all the obvious reasons. And But LinkedIn, you know, Google and Yahoo, of course, caved. But LinkedIn said no. I don't know if they still are, but they said no at some point. And you cannot access LinkedIn in Russia. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so... I'm not sure if that's absolutely still the case, but they, they did put up a stand at least for a while. But what you're going to see in the future is, is this occurring where people are going to, you know, governments are going to carve out markets. And I can already tell you for my clients who are small, who don't have very many sales from people in the EU, they're really focused on the U.S. and maybe they get five sales, their courses or whatever from the EU. The legitimate question at this point is, do you block all your traffic? Because you're not making much money off of it, and compliance with these new regulations is such a pain in the rear and so costly that does it make sense to do that? And I think that that's where the internet's headed. I'm not a savant on this. A lot of people think this, is that you're going to see essentially economic continents, if you will, Mm -hmm. digital continents, and people will need access. So if you're running a business and you're planning for the future, you need to be thinking about this. What is the ideal market for you? And, and how do you position your business to be able to access that market? And maybe, you know, do you need to, you know, limit your exposure in other markets where you're not making much money anyways, you know, and they're going to have draconian laws. A lot of people, you know, are looking at the EU and just thinking, what are you doing? Because they're going to hurt business there. Yeah, they really they, are. They actually, so in 2015, they introduced a new, it's called VATMOS laws 
which right. uh, basically turned the VAT's like sales tax. So they basically turned the place of supply from the origin country to the consumer's country for digital products. And this was really as a way of targeting Amazon, relocating to the cheaper tax countries and within the EU to, to save money. But actually what they ended up doing was just hurting all the small guys, including us, by having these crazy onerous regulations and having to calculate different tax rates dynamically and none of the software or like membership carts or anything like that were, were compliant with it. So it was just a, a whole whole mess really. But yeah. it's uh, all, all in the name of uh, data protection, I guess. Eh? Well, you're going to see, and you're going to see more of that. You really are. And making money online is often about, you know, seeing what's coming in the future and positioning yourself correctly. And yeah, that's, I mean, I could see in five years, 10 years, where people are really just isolated to specific markets or countries, you know, economic regions or countries. And, you know, if the EU is your market, then, you know, you sell to that. And if it's not, then, you know, you block them. I have clients now that block uh, Canada email. Really? Um, yeah. Oh. Just because, you know, the law is so draconian. Now, the, the big catch-all with all of this is how do they actually enforce these? You know, so for the EU, enforcing against Amazon is easy because Amazon's there. They have offices there. They have all those kinds of things. If you're a guy running $2,500 affiliate site a month and you're in Portland, you know, how do they enforce that against you? And the idea, you know, some attorneys argue, well, they're, they're foreign judgment treaties between countries, which is true. But I think that from a practical prospect, if the EU is starting to try and enforce its laws in California, mm -hmm. knowing the position of California judges, I'm pretty sure they're not going to get very far with that. Just as if a California judge tried to issue a judgment on an EU company in Germany and said, this is binding on you, screw German law. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the Germans aren't going to be too receptive to that. <laughs> but the problem that we face is nobody really knows, you know, there's no clear lines on this and how's it all going to play out. So as an attorney in particular, trying to advise your clients, is, yeah, it can be difficult. Excellent. So we've gone on for quite some time. It's been a really interesting show, actually. I, I've learned a lot from this episode. Hopefully our listeners have too. Is there anything else that, that you want to cover or any, anything else you want to, you want to mention that we, we haven't gone through so far? Sure. Just one quick thing. It's, it's just kind of a notice to people. Going back to copyright law. So the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, if you are running a site where you let people do your visitors or your users upload anything, comments, what have you, you should comply with the DMCA. Because again, just like when we discussed with Facebook, it gives you immunity from copyright infringement claims based on what those people upload to your site. And copyright infringement can be text, it can be anything. As part of that process, you have to comply with the DMCA. You have to register an agent with the Copyright Office. I have a separate separate company called DMCAgentService.com that you can use for an agent if you don't want to list yourself. It doesn't really matter. But the big issue with that is if you've already registered with the Copyright Office, they launched a new system. And they are not moving the previous registrations over to the new system. So by the end of this year, December 31st, 2017, you have to register in the new system again or you lose your agent designation and you lose the protections of the DMCA. So make sure that if you are currently DMCA compliant that you go back to the Copyright Office and that you re-register so that you maintain those protections moving forward. If you are not registered and you're allowing users to post something to your site, Go ahead and register at six dollars, <laughs> which it used to be one hundred and forty. It's one of the, the rare instances where prices drop dramatically. But at six dollars, 
you go ahead and register. You can buy a book on Amazon called the DMCA Handbook, and it's written by an attorney in Arizona for people who are running sites. It's 40 bucks. I think it's out of print right now, but I actually talked to the attorney, and it's going to be back in print, I think, in October. But it explains the process. It's in plain English, not in lawyer <laughs> language. You can use that, or you can just sit down with an attorney, pay them 250 for an hour, and they can guide you through the thing, put together a checklist, whatever. It's worth your weight in gold. Copyright infringement is the most common legal claim online. It's a monopoly game. You're getting a free pass on this. <laughs> so apply with the DMCA because it, it could save your bacon, and it can eliminate a lot of the risks that you have when operating online. All right, and, and that's December this year. You said it was the, the, the deadline. Yes, December 31st, 2017. Okay. okay, great. All right, Richard, I really appreciate your time today. So thanks thanks very much for coming on. I'm sure there's going to be more than a few people who have questions, and this has maybe sparked one or two alarms in, in some people's minds. If people do want to get in touch with you, if they have follow-up questions or, or perhaps want to engage in your services as a lawyer, where can they find you? My site is SoCal, like Southern California, internetlawyer.com. If you don't find it, you can always find me by doing just a search for Richard Chapo, C-H-A-P-O. And I'm one of the few ones that pop up. There's a drug lord in Mexico who goes by the <laughs> nickname Chapo. I was going to say, no relation of yours. Then. <laughs> no, no. It's, uh, I've been tempted. I live close to Mexico. San Diego's right on the border with Mexico. And I've, I've been tempted to go down and order, try to order free drinks. But then it occurred, <laughs> occurred to me there might be some some competitors there who might not be you know, happy to hear there's a Chapo around. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I have nothing to do with that. So when the search results come up and you see all these things about the FBI, that's not me. <laughs> So, but either of those, you can find me and, uh, you know, I'll be happy to give you a free consultation. Just mention the show and uh, I'll take a look at what you're doing and at least give you an idea of, you know, any serious concerns you have. Excellent. And I'm definitely going to have a few questions for you after this show. Um, I think there's one or two things we need to be doing ourselves. So uh, uh, let's stay on the line and I'll, I'll keep talking to you about that. Okay. Um, but once again, thanks everyone for listening today. You can find all the show notes, all of the links, links to Richard's site at authorityhacker.com forward slash legal podcast and everything will be in, in there. So thanks again and we'll see you guys next Monday. Thanks for listening to the Authority Hacker Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and send us a screenshot on authorityhacker.com slash bonus to claim your free premium Authority Hacker training.